So as we emerge out of COVID realities or emerging out of COVID realities, it's become clear to me that not everybody's pandemic experience has been the same. Uh, some people have had a, a, a very, very, well, most of us have had a hard time. Some people have had like a really hard time uh, throughout this pandemic for a variety of reasons. Um, and it may well have felt to you that sort of the life you experienced was out of your control, right? All kinds of things that you wanted to do or even needed to do were out of reach. You couldn't do them, and they were taken away from you. There was restrictions. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do this. And on it went, and it was a difficult experience. We just felt like life was sort of out of our control. And I... Maybe you feel like that every day. Some days are worse than others for me. I feel like life can sort of spin out of control. Uh, I'm I'm needing to listen to less news because some of it's very negative. Uh, If you listen to the news, if you're kind of dialed into that, uh, it can be very discouraging. And it does feel like the world is sort of spinning out of, at least out of my control, out of our control in all kinds of ways. Which is why our statement of faith is so important. Uh, This particular statement is in Varsity's statement of faith. It reads as follows. We believe in the sovereignty and the grace of the triune God in works of creation, revelation, redemption, and judgment. Now, that is a really loaded, packed statement, deliberately somewhat, uh, but, but I want to just focus on the sovereignty and the grace of God this morning. And what do we mean by that, and why is it so essential? And I hope, uh, so it's going to be a little bit like one part lecture for about like, I don't know, five minutes. I'm just going to walk you through those theological terms. But then I'm going to shift back into trying to encourage you, implore you, beg you uh, to, to realize how important, how vital this is that we believe in a God who is sovereign and we believe in a God who is gracious. So, sovereign. Our best probably use and understanding of that word comes from the fact that we live in a monarchy. You don't probably think of it that way, but uh, Canada is actually a monarchy, as is England. We have the same queen, the same sovereign. Her head appears on our money and a few other places and there's some very official functions that take place in Canadian society, you know, in the name of the Queen of England, Queen of Canada, depending how you view that. Um, and she is our sovereign. What sovereign is, the word conveys, is power, authority, rule, right? So the British Commonwealth, that's where the Queen of England is sovereign, has power, authority, and rule. But as it's applied to God, what that means is that God is ruler, and not just of the commonwealth or a few nations, but God is ruler over all his creation. And additionally, it means that his purposes will prevail, that what God imagines doing in the world, God will do in the world. His purposes will uh, his, his, his dreams, his, his, the direction where he wants to move the story will, in fact, prevail. That's sovereignty, okay? Think of it in terms of rule. The problem with thinking about it as terms of the queen, like the queen, I'm sure she's a delightful lady, uh, but she's completely inaccessible, right? Like you can't possibly talk to the queen <laughs> um, or see her, get an audience with her. Like, it's not going to happen. 
Except for that, if you watch The Crown, the one guy that snuck into Buckingham Palace, like that episode, it's pretty interesting. I digress. Um, so that's why it's important that we hold God's sovereignty alongside God's grace. Okay? God isn't just sovereign, big, authoritative, ruler of the universe, but God is gracious. Grace uh, is, really describes what is given freely. Um, gift. All right? And theologians... Uh, spend long uh, hours debating and writing books about, and they parse out grace. There's what's called um, special grace or sometimes saving grace, which refers to the gifts we receive in Jesus uh, that uh, bring about salvation, the salvation of our, in our lives and in creation. And then there's what's called common grace, which is more um, sort of everyday acts of goodness. Uh, so example of that, uh, a week ago, we took my son Daniel right there out for dinner to celebrate graduating high school, and we're at this restaurant, and I don't know if you remember last Friday, but like for about, you know, an hour and a bit, it just like dumped rain, right? Like poured. So, which was fine. We were in a restaurant, except Luke wasn't. He was walking to the restaurant when it just poured, and he literally showed up. I, like he could have, like I'm not exaggerating here, I've, like he could have stepped out of the shower, as he walked in the restaurant, he's like, you're just like dripping wet. You just are soaked. And we're like, how is this going to work? Like, it's kind of a nice restaurant. He's like, just soaked. And the waiter, one of the waiters says, oh, I'll go to my locker and get a shirt. And lent him a dress shirt so Luke could sit in there. That's common grace, right? An act of like unexpected gift, kindness, right? Like no words about God or salvation were spoken, but it's just this act of unimaginable or unexpected kindness, right? So grace is, you've got sovereignty, which deals with God's power and authority and rule, and grace, which deals with sort of God's kindness and, and giving of his gifts. Let me bring this into focus. I can't think of a better place to read than Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this is just a stunning text, that speaks of God's sovereignty and grace. So if you are able and would um, humor me, I'm going to invite you, if you're in the room and even if you're at home, uh, to stand as we hear God's words spoken. Okay, I'm going to be reading Ephesians. So go ahead and stand. Ephesians, if you can, uh, will. Ephesians chapter 1, and I will read from verse 3 to verse 14. It'll appear on the screen. And I invite you to hear God's words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption into sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have, the redemp we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in, a co- in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. What a stunning text. In Greek, I am told by various Greek scholars, this is one sentence, if you can imagine. Uh, It is like a complete run-on sentence, as you can see. Uh, Paul is just tripping over himself to try and explain to you all what God has done and what God is doing, particularly what God is doing through Christ. And so if we put on this little chart, let me just walk you through this a little bit, okay? So... These, you'll see they're completely intertwined, God's sovereignty and grace. They aren't like God's sovereign and God's gracious. They're kind of intertwined in this text. But see that God has, like notice how it, all of the, the, the sovereignty, that column, all of it is God is the subject. God is the initiator and the bringer about of these things. That He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the creation of the world. He predestined us. He made known to us His will. He will bring about unity of all things. He works out everything in accordance with His will or everything in conformity with His will. Okay, these are the things that God is doing. Right? God is sovereign. This is what God is about. And God has always been about it. You, you will recall our year of biblical literacy and you could see that God was moving in these ways in the story. And yet, notice that we are recipients, grace. We have freely been given grace. We have redemption. We have been forgiven. We are included in Christ. We are marked with the promised Holy Spirit. The richness of this text is unbelievable, friends. And I'm actually not going to preach on this text a lot. The best thing I can say to you is this. This is the single best thing I can say to you about this text. Memorize it. Memorize it. This is your homework for the summer. Memorize this text. And why I say that to you, I am starting to do this, is as you memorize it, you will read it again and again and again and again and again, which is what you need to do here. This is such an incredibly rich text explaining what God is doing and what we receive. And truly, friends, memorize this text. And notice, we'll come back to this in a moment, notice that all of it, the repeated phrase is to the praise of His glory. Okay, so you see God's sovereignty and grace in this text. But um, this is sort of theological. You can, yeah, that taking that down. Uh, we can get a little bit lost. It feels a bit abstract. Let me tell you a story. So this is now, that's theology. And really, I just want to say to you, memorize the text, friends, please memorize this text so but a story if you think of the story of israel we talked about it in our year of biblical literacy but let me sort of zero in on um the the family of israel the family of jacob 
And you'll see God's sovereignty and grace at work in story form. Okay, Jacob, if you know the story, uh, was um, a dishonest manipulator. <laughs> it, that assumes there's honest manipulators. He's dishonest, and he was a manipulator, right? He just is not a good guy, really. Um, and he essentially steals his brother's birthright. That may not seem like a big deal to you and I in our culture, but it was a huge deal in mi- ancient Middle Eastern culture. Uh, what Jacob did was, was really a betrayal um, of his brother and of the whole family system. Um, and this comes back to haunt Jacob, actually. Uh, if you look at the family that he then, uh, his family gets married multiple times and then has uh, concubines as well, or, or servants get sort of lent to him. Um, his family is the single, they're the original dysfunctional family, right? It is, just, it is just a train wreck, this family, uh, truly. If you look at the kids' names, like they're called like, oh, God loves me and you're rubbish, and God, you know, God's favored me and look at you, nah, nah, nah. You know, it's just like, it's just mean. Like these kids' names are just, their kids are pawns in this family dynamic um, that shows that God favors Jacob or one of his wives or one of his concubines and not the others. And it's just a complete disaster, this family. It is awful. But here's what's amazing in that story. This dysfunctional family, the family of Jacob, is the birth line of Jesus. Right? When you read in Matthew, out of Judah comes my son. Right? Judah is one of Jacob's kids, one of these 12 sons, and there are some daughters in there. Out of this mess, out of this complete dysfunction, Jesus emerges. Okay? And what I want you to see in story form is that God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's intent, God's purpose carries on despite human dysfunction, right? Despite the complete and utter failure of some of the people in the story, God's purposes prevail. Jesus does emerge. But I want you to see in that the incredible, incredible grace of God as well and how God meets people in their dysfunction and works with it and through it and even redeems it. To quote Bono on this, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. It's a great line. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. So this is God's sovereignty and grace. It is woven through the biblical story, right? The narrative. The God's purposes, uh, they take some detours, I suspect, but God's purposes ultimately prevail. It's a unified story, the Bible, that points us to Jesus, and Jesus emerges and does everything that God intends for Jesus to do. And yet it is an act of sheer grace. It's gift. Okay, now why does this matter? All right, I'm just trying to give you a sense of that's what it is, and it's woven through the story. Let me tell you briefly why it matters. I'm going to say two things, okay? Uh, So you don't need to stick with me. Two things. Okay, first of all is this, is that God is in control, right? This speaks to God's sovereignty, there is a great text in Revelation, which some of us don't read, but we should, and we will in the fall. We're going to do a series on Revelation, so primer. Um, here's the text. This is John writing, John the Apostle likely, and he's, 
He has this vision. He says, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice that I'd heard at first saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. Okay, now, get the image here. Throne, right? The one who, like, that's, uh, that's what kings and queens sit on, thrones, right? Authority, rule. So he sees a throne in heaven. Now, don't miss this. There was before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Okay, that phrase, with someone sitting on it. There is one who sits on the throne, friends. And it is God. There is one who still sits on the throne. So no matter how out of control your life felt in the past year in the pandemic, or maybe it feels like uh, is still spinning out of control post-pandemic or kind of early days post-pandemic, or as you look at the world and you think, what, like, you know, the assassination of the, the, the president of Haiti, and you think this country is, you know, like, I don't, I don't know how to deal with any of that stuff. I don't even know how to respond to it. And news story after news story sort of like batters me and says, you know, the world's out of control. There's nobody in charge. And Revelation is a counter voice. It says there is still someone sitting on the throne and God is in control. God is still sovereign. And this is good news, friends. This is incredibly good news. We are then able to live with a at least a sense of peace. I don't want to pretend you won't be anxious or afraid, but there is kind of this underlying sort of foundational rock foundation that just sort of holds us, that God is still on the throne. God is still on, in control. Julian of Norwich, I don't, some of you might know who that lady is, some of you won't have a clue. She's uh, in the Christian story, um, I should have looked up her dates again, 1300s, right? Maybe 1400s, somewhere in there. Um, Julian of Norwich, uh, she, her most famous words, you'll know them, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. What you might not know, because she doesn't write about this at all, and you'd have to study English history to kind of know this, but she wrote during the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. So I don't know a lot about the Hundred Years' War, but war is awful, and a Hundred Years' War would be like really awful. So she wrote at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death had just emerged in England, in the town that she lived in, Norwich, one-third of the population died. There was a papal schism, so that will mean nothing to most of you, but what you need to hear in that, the, the, the Catholic Church were arguing, and there was a time with two popes, one in France and one in Rome, and they, there was a complete division in the church. The Archbishop of Canterbury, so that's the lead of the English church, Church of England, was beheaded, and Richard II, king, was murdered. All right, now try and place yourself in that time. All right, like, like I don't want to contemporize that, but just think about that. How awful that would have been. And here's Julian and Norwich saying, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Friends, I am telling you the only possible way she could write that with any integrity at all is if she believes that there is still someone sitting on the throne. And it is God. And he is sovereign. 
and still in control. Okay, so that's why this matters. This isn't just some abstract theology. This actually can allow us to live with some sense of confidence or peace or or well-being. Second reason why this matters is that God is approachable. Here I want to just read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 4. And the writer says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted just in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now here's the point I want to get to. Let us then, because of Jesus and what Jesus has done and that he's gone before us, excuse me, Let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach God's throne with grace and confidence. This is no small thing, friends, to approach God. If you've read the story of Nadab and Abihu, which probably you haven't, But maybe you have, Leviticus chapter 10, so probably you haven't. If you go look at that story sometime, these are two guys, priests, who show up and they offer unauthorized fire, whatever that is. They kind of do it not quite right according to the time or whatever. I'm not even sure what all happened, but all of a sudden this fire burns them up. They die, they approach God wrong or something's going off there, off the rails. Approaching God can be uh, kind of a dangerous enterprise actually. If we really think about it, Annie Dillard uh, has this great article on worship. It's a little strange, mind you, where she compares going to the North Pole and coming to worship, and she jumps between these two. It's, it's a bit bizarre. But uh, here's what she says. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions, and that's her whole point. She talks about how Franklin goes to the North Pole And, you know, they had really fine silverware, but they didn't have warm clothes. They were just completely unprepared for what they're finding, and they they died, actually. Um, And she's making the analogy that most of us Christians sort of aren't aware of what we're doing. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing... The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up batches of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake sometime and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What she's getting at is that if God is God, if God is all-powerful, we should approach with awe, reverence, care. But don't miss this. God is approachable, right? The text in, in, in Hebrews locates us there. We can approach, because of Jesus, we can approach the throne with grace and confidence. So it's this tension. It's not just, hey, buddy Jesus, high five, maybe, but we certainly can come 
God wants us to come. He is approachable. So God is in control. God is sovereign. But God is gracious, and therefore we can come. So what is our response? Well, really, like last week, I gave you one thing to respond, learn to pray, or sort of be on that journey of learning to pray. This morning, the response is worship. If God is sitting on the throne and and invites us with confidence to come before that throne, we can do this morning the very thing that they do in the book of Revelation, which is worship that God. And that's why we've sort of back-ended now. We're going to go into a time of worship and join with the multitude in heaven worshiping the God who sits on the throne. J.I. Packer, who was still uh, remarkably teaching at my time at Regent, he was old then, Um, but J.I. Packer, the theologian taught at Regent many, many years, is known to say these words, all theology leads to or is for the sake of doxology. What he means by that is all theology, all study of God, all God talk, what what I've been doing here. The only reason for that is to bring us to praise. So friends, let me pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up and let us worship. Be drawn into this throne room of heaven and approach the throne with grace and confidence this morning. So while I pray, you guys can grab your, your ladies can grab your places and they will lead us in worship. God, you are sovereign. I'm sure I don't know the first thing about that or, or maybe only the first thing about that. But thank you, God, that you sit on the throne. It doesn't always seem that way to me. I, there's lots that sort of beat against that belief. But yet you are God and you sit on the throne. And then remarkably, best of all, is you invite me to come before you. And we can, with grace and with confidence, approach you. And so may we do that now, may we do that in the days and the weeks to come. God of grace, God of power, may we worship you.